Hi everyone and welcome to For Fact's Sake, the Ferrets podcast about misinformation and fact checking. I am your host as always, Ali Bryan, and alongside me, my pal, the Confucius of the cast, it's Paul Dobson. How are you doing, Paul? I'm well, Ali. That's a real thinker, that one. Takes yeah. a little bit of time to work it out, but um, we've got intelligent listeners, so I'm sure they'll they'll be well on top of that. Exactly. So... How have you been, Paul? Um, been up to much recently? Seen anything at the book festival? Anything like that? Uh, I have been in Edinburgh. I've given oh, yeah. the book festival a bit of a wide berth. Um, maybe return next year. Right. Um, to explain uh, a little bit about that, the, um, you may have seen an article written by Mr. Paul Dobson about um, Bailey Gifford and their sponsorship of uh, the Edinburgh Book Festival. That's caused a, a mite of controversy over the last week or so. Just a little. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about misinformation and specifically this week, misinformation and abuse uh, related to the Women's World Cup. That's right, Ali. We're speaking to Beth Fielding Lloyd, who's a lecturer at Sheffield Hallam Uni, who has conducted research into the promotion and progression of women's sport and also done research into abuse within women's sport uh, directed at athletes and journalists particularly online, but also in the physical space. What else are we discussing, Ali? We'll also be taking a look at a dodgy claim by an SMP MP about the attainment gap. And because me and Paul have been desperately trying to shift some of our holiday weights uh, in recent weeks, we're going to look at some classic health myths to see whether or not they are correct. So, a packed podcast Shall we start with um, our interview with Beth? Let's do it. I'm Dr. Beth Fielding Lloyd, and I'm a researcher into women's sport and sport media at Sheffield Hallam University. Excellent. So we're speaking in uh, the midst of the Women's World Cup, which has been obviously a huge event and has, but also has. Mm-hmm. What's come with it is a lot of uh, online abuse and um, the things that we kind of associate quite often with sports people uh, when they're <laughs> in the public eye. But I wondered if you could give us a, a bit of a sort of overview of the sort of abuse that sportswomen and notably footballers get and how that is different to the abuse that people in general and male players get. Um, well, we have most definitely seen uh, male players and male football players in particular because of their profile receive uh, plenty of abuse on social media. Um, and I would say that um, abuse of sports women differs from that in the same way that abuse in real life may differ in that it's particularly gendered. So mm-hmm. what we've seen is that it can, that sort of abuse can often be much more focused on appearance. There does tend to be much more kind of sexual harassment form of abuse for sports women. But what what I think is of particular interest right now is, you know, women's sport is probably gaining a higher degree of attention than it ever has before. And uh, in some sports, such as football, women's sport is becoming uh, professionalised. So it's for the first time women can you know, really earn a decent income through playing sport. So women are, are entering spaces the space of sport more prominently than they ever have before. And what we are beginning to find that there's a vocal backlash to that online. So what we found is that as well as the really vitriolic abuse that 
all sorts of women in all sorts of different spheres of life experience on social media. What we're seeing in the sports specific context is a lot of the kind of you don't deserve to be here kind of comments. Yeah, so I think you've explained a wee bit of that um, in that answer, but can you explain just a little bit more about the patterns of online abuse that we see of notable women online, particularly those who express opinions in sort of traditionally male spaces? I wouldn't say it's a purely, I think we need to be careful um, of articulating this as a purely online problem. You know, social media, the online Mm. um, environment reflects real life. Um, So women are quite used to being marginalised in the real life workplace too. Um, I just venture that it's perhaps more explicit online. So you get that kind of, you know, the, the term keyboard warrior and the anonymity that that those online environments present perhaps enable empower people to say things that they wouldn't say in real life um and it's interesting you know i'm using that term in real life like social media isn't real life it's interesting that we kind of present that sort of dichotomy that i probably shouldn't actually really agree with because saying something on somebody's twitter feed i think kind of seems inconsequential to users um but it isn't it has a very harmful impact on victims' lives and on their professional identities. You know, so so in the research that we conducted recently, you know, had a female sports journalist who took herself mm-hmm. off Twitter. Now you might think, well, you know, okay, so you're not using Twitter, what's the problem? Twitter's used in now in our professional identities. It's a tool, it's a self-promotion yeah. tool. So for women to be excluded from that space because of the abuse they're receiving puts them at a disadvantage. Yeah, I think that leads us on to what I was going to ask next, actually, which is uh, you talked about your research, this research you've recently done. Um, mm. And I was interested by the kind of the way that this sort of uh, gendered abuse sort of develops. Mm. Um, and I know that your research was based, was kind of based around one, a kind of a single event that yeah. had taken place. What was the trigger event that then kind of led to this pylon, so to speak? Generally, to define a, a trigger event, a trigger event is an instance um, that can, in online context, promote an instant response. So it might be a comment, it might be a mistake, it might be a poor performance. So we saw when um, you know, like Marcus Rashford and others got a whole heap of, of racist abuse yeah. uh, when they missed those penalties, the missed penalties were the trigger event, which then led to the pile-up. Um, the research uh, that we conducted um, was a very particular form of, of a trigger event in the female sports journalist, Karen Carney, made a comment. Uh, I think it was, uh, I can't remember if it was before the game or at halftime between Leeds United um, and another team, made a comment about Leeds United's past performance. And it was was fairly innocuous, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, What actually happened, and we can perhaps talk about this later, is uh, the football club um, that were commented upon, Leeds United, posted on their Twitter feed they've criticised her comment, basically, and said that she was wrong and made fun of it, which then led to a huge pile-on. And how Mm. our research was perhaps a little different than other research that's been done before is we were able to kind of time-lapse analyse that social media pile-on. So we were able to work out what the abuse looked like in the very kind of early minutes after that comment uh, and how it escalated over the course of four days. And what we showed is that it gradually got, well, very quickly, but over a period of time, got more and more vitriolic. So it started off with the very much, oh, actually, journalist woman, you're wrong, and this is why. 
and then turn to be kind of more derogatory, more, um, you know, you're out of line, you shouldn't be here. And then it moved on to all women shouldn't be here and moved yeah. on to some really horrific vitriolic abuse over a period of time until that journalist took herself off social media. Is there something about football and the way that like people react to like, an incredibly emotional way to what people yeah. say? So like if you look at the, if you look at the comparison between like generalized journalists and we are obviously journalists and we get various bits of people disagreeing with us or whatever. Yeah. But there's a sort of emotive nature of how people react in football. I'm totally react when their team is being criticized. Although in this this situation she, she wasn't criticizing Leeds United she was just making no. a point about why they one of the reasons why they might have been promoted um but does that lead to sort of more vociferous and more angry response I think so I think so I think you've got the combination of what we call a trigger event and also it's a fairly established term in social psychology which is in groups and out groups which mm-hmm. is basically if you think about it what all sport fandom is based on you are a member of a group Um, So you support that team. In order to support that team, there are other people who are not a member of your group. So they are the out group, you know, the the whole kind of like us and them sense. So when you combine trigger events with that kind of in-group, out-group fan identification that is essentially what sport is, it's tribal, it's I support that team, not that team, really you can whip up a whole kind of firestorm that is a dangerous combination which can lead to this kind of abuse and in our research we talked about how the female journalist was very much positioned as an out group not only was she not a fan of the football team um, but she very much did not deserve to be in that space and how that was evidenced through the the, the abuse that she received during the, uh, the current women's world cup going on we've had a, a sort of relatively similar um thing happen in terms of what's happened with uh lauren james uh in recent weeks um mm-hmm. after uh her making a mistake in a game you know a, a, making a poor decision in a game mm. and that leading to a torrent of uh, abuse um is that would that be considered to be like a trigger point does that work in the same way do you think absolutely the, the minute it happened that you know because my head my head is in this at the moment mm-hmm. um that's definitely a potential trigger event that i think sports broadly needs to learn to be prepared for um you know for example the fa and, and there was a lot of immediate concern that she was going to get uh, abuse because of as you say that poor decision um i haven't pulled any data on that yet but anecdotally what we've seen is a lot of social media comment um opining about the women's game you know how they thought that the women's game was fairer they thought the women's game was nicer surprised her actions and you know and and derogatory about her performance i'm not saying that um you know social media is used as a tool for conversation around sport and of course you can be critical about a player's performance and a player's decision making but there's there's ways of doing that um I would say more generally regarding this World Cup so far. So there's been the Lauren James um, incident. I'd say, again, it's an environment where the, the general backlash against women's increasing participation in elite sport can be evidenced. Um, and I still think there's a lot of work that still needs to be understand, understood around that. Um, there seems to be an awful lot of Twitter users right now who are spending a lot of time tweeting about how they're not interested in the Women's World Cup. Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> cl- that, yeah. Which, you know, I, I, I'm not interested in, yeah, I'm not interested in cricket, but I don't feel the need to explain to lots of people just how not interested in it I am. Mm. Um, I would say what we've also seen as well as the Lauren James incident is, uh, the U S women's team 
have come in for a, a lot of not just criticism but abuse um, because of their vocal demands for equal pay, which is quite right. That's now being criticised as legit, illegitimate since they got knocked out of the tournament. Um, so kind of a, a backlash against women being dominant in this sport environment, but also demanding equal pay for their work. It's very much that sort of, you know, stay in your lane rhetoric, I think we're seeing at this World Cup. We've spoken quite a lot. We sort of referenced these things a little bit as we've spoken, but what sort of impact do you think? There's a lot of kind of misinformation. There's a lot of myths which are... Um, which are kind of perpetuated around women's participation in sport and around women's football. We talked about people talking about uh, how much they weren't interested uh, by <laughs> that's that's obviously you quite often hear the argument that women's sports being somehow like over promoted or like you know put into people's feeds and stuff like that. There's obviously talk about like oh, stunners. yeah yeah or like comparing the quality between men's and women's sport quite often. Then yeah. even with um, reference to what you said um, about uh, Lauren James about. A sort of patronizing element of like oh we thought it was like pure and more you know that oh they don't go in for the diving that men do and all that sort of stuff this all oh, these yeah. things are feed into a perception of women's sport that does that then impact how people how much abuse people face and how people are treated in that way i think so um in, in lots of different ways um i'd, I'd say what would what I see a lot what i've noticed a lot is a general myth around women's sport is that it's relatively new yeah. Um, and that and that if you just kind of you know if you're patient and you know if you ju it just needs time you know and just wait for you to bring in the money as if it as if professional sport just organically grows mm -hmm. that, that that's not the case at all w women's sports have been actively prohibited and under invested in for decades and we're fairly early on in that journey to put that right. So let's stick to football. Men's football in this country has had decades of financial and social investment, you know, from <clears throat> excuse me, television coverage to even, you know, the education system. Boys are mm -hmm. acculturated into playing football from yeah. being able to walk. And it's that investment in lots of different areas of our social lives that has led football to the point that it is now it, it you know it dominates it dominates our culture doesn't it in comparison women's football was banned for 50 years it only became really really professional five years ago mm -hmm. so the professionalization of women's football is a relatively small readjustment to make to redress that balance and in, still, in terms of we're seeing the financial investment into the women's game compared to men's, I, that argument that women's sport is being forced upon anybody you know, just, just, just doesn't stack up. So it's exam results season. Um, and last week, Ali, you did a fact check on the attainment gap in Scotland. So can you just remind us what the claim was that was made and where it was made? Yep, uh, in a Radio 4 interview, um, SNP MP David Linden listed the achievements that the SNP government uh, had made. Um, one of the claims he made was that in terms of education, we've closed the attainment gap by two thirds. Okay, so just to take this back to basics, what is mm. the attainment gap? So the attainment gap is basically the difference in attainment between students in the most deprived areas and the least deprived areas. 
Uh, in Scotland, that's measured using SIMD data, which is uh, the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the attainment gap is obviously really important because like research has shown that the poverty-related attainment gap has a significant impact on social mobility. And basically, it can have huge consequences all the way through your life. So if you are if you're in an area where attainment is poor, then you might be less likely to go on to good jobs and have better, you know, have a worse life chances as you go through. Okay, and how does the Scottish government measure the attainment gap? So, yeah, so the SNP and the Scottish government have made like education and closing the attainment gap one of their big sort of um, policies in recent years um they measure across loads of different categories so there's like literacy levels numeracy levels reading levels that's for people in school there's destinations of people who leave school and there's also things like attainment um of like how many grades you got before you left school loads of different measures across like a wide variety yeah and obviously education is one thing that the snp have been quite consistently criticized on in the last Mm -hmm. Sort of few years. Um, so was David Linden right in the claim he made? So I'd say not really. Um, so when we got in touch with the uh, SNP after we he we said we we're going to fact check the claim, they said he was referring to one specific measure, which is school leaver destinations. So mm-hmm. that's the measure of where young people who leave school are in Scotland are three months after they leave. So. Scottish government measures these by positive destinations. So that's people that are either in work or they're in further higher education or various other schemes um, and not, you know, um, out of work or things like that. So on this measure, the Scotland has made some progress. They've reduced that gap um, between rich and poorest by about two thirds since 2010. Okay. So, so far, so good. But that's one of numerous measures of attainment, which the Scottish government measures and includes in their... Um, policy measurements called the Scottish Attainment Challenge. Um, other measures include, one of the more significant measures is, is they measure pupils in primary one, primary four, and primary seven, and then in S3 across categories, like how they attained um, their attainment in reading, writing, listening and talking, literacy and numeracy. On this measure, there's been almost no progress. Okay. So there's either been some areas that's been limited progress, some areas have stayed static, and some areas have even increased uh, in across the last five or six years. So it's been nothing really like a two-thirds reduction in any of those areas. Um, there's also a t- the attainment uh, gap for school leavers. So that's how much like, the attainment that people who leave schools from the poorest and richest areas, how many like at different grades they have. So they measure as a one passing grade at SQ, SCQF 4, 5, and 6 level. So that's um, National 4, National 5, higher. Yeah. Again, there's been some progress on this, but nothing like the two-thirds reduction that David Linden claimed. Um, And we couldn't really find a two-thirds reduction anywhere in the statistics apart from on that one specific measure, which they said he was referring to. But he he didn't say that in his claim. He said that in terms of education, we've closed the attainment gap by two-thirds. And that, if you look at across the different measures which the Scottish government promotes, it's just not correct. So we went with a mostly false verdict for that. So Ali, this week on Paul's Curiosity Corner, as we both try to work off a bit of excess weight um, that we've both put on from a few too many pub lunches over the summer, 
I thought it might be worth delving into the world of fitness. So mm. we're going to take a brief look at some oft-repeated fitness claims, yeah. and you, as our esteemed fact-checker, are going to tell us whether they are true or false. Okay. So first up, a claim that we often hear when we tell someone we've put on a few pounds, namely that muscle weighs more than fat. Is that true? So the difference between muscle and fat really is about density. So uh, without getting involved in the, that lemmy bit about steel weighing heavier than feathers, obviously a kilogram of muscle is weighs the same as a kilogram of fat, but it takes up a lot less space and it serves your body better, basically. So your body weight probably isn't necessarily the best indicator of how healthy you are. Um, yeah. So, you know, for example, you'll have two different people that weighs at the same amount and they'll, they'll look very different, um, mm -hmm. have higher fat percentage than the other. So I'd say the short answer is yes, it does weigh more per volume, like by volume. Okay. Maybe that if you're talking about overall fitness and health, that the scale isn't, isn't necessarily the best gauge. Next up, the claim that it's the number of calories that you eat, not what type of food you get them from. Is that correct? Yeah, again, I think this, some of these claims and these things are, it's about what you're aiming for with fitness, I think, and with health. Yeah. Um, so obviously it's true if your aim is purely weight loss you need a calorie deficit to lose weight yeah so you know technically speaking once your body's energy needs are met by the food that you eat extra calories are stored in your body some are stored in muscles but most of it's stored as fat so if you eat more calories than you burn you gain weight if you eat less calories than you burn you lose weight that's the straightforward like scientific thing behind it mm -hmm. but again different types of food have different impacts and you know the idea of like all calories are the same i don't think that's necessarily the, the case in terms of like ha having a healthy um life and have and, and the kind of likelihood that you'll lose weight in a long-term sense because of like you know sticking to your diets things like that so for example if you eat 100 calories of beans uh yeah. you'll be far less hungry for longer than if you eat 100 calories of a chocolate bar which is like a tiny mm -hmm. little bit of chocolate yeah um yeah. This is why dietitians always talk about stuff like complex carbohydrates, like fiber and starch, things like that, because they make you feel fuller for longer, you know, for the amount of calories you eat of them. And that means you're less likely to crave food and then eat more of it. <laughs> and then your diet collapses. So yeah, yeah. I think that's basically what they mean by that. Okay. Um, coming to the gym now, is it true that if you want to burn calories, you should lift weights rather than do cardio exercises like running or cycling or swimming? Yeah, when I was looking into this one, I think it's one of the, a lot of these the problems with these these claims and these things is they're really simplistic and they don't really take into account what people do or what people are aiming for or yeah. Do you know what I mean? So if you say that okay, should you mm. should you should you do cardio or should you do weights? And if you want if you want to burn calories, it depends what you do in both those places. So if broadly speaking, it seems to be that research suggests that cardiovascular exercise like running and things like that will burn more calories per session at the, around the same effort. But if you know doesn't account for things like interval training or people doing like you know um high reps of low weight and all that sort of stuff so if you are you know running a run, jogging at a slow very very slow pace compared to somebody who's doing interval training on weights or circuit training and weights then you're probably going to burn more calories from the weights but the flip side of it is if you're running really, really fast and you're doing like weights more slowly and more gradually and focusing on lifting heavy things then you're probably going to burn more calories from running um, obviously increasing your muscle has some calorie burning benefits because it sort of increases your uh, metabolism um, 
And so the more muscle you have, the more calories you burn when you're at rest and not work as you can burn some calories, more, more calories maybe between sessions. But again, for normal people, I think it just really depends what you're doing and how, how high intensity your work is in both areas, really. Yeah, I think also like it's quite a mechanistic way of looking at exercise, right? Because exercise isn't only or shouldn't only be about losing weight. Like it should also be enjoyable. So yeah, exactly. You know. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's another aspect of the whole thing is that what we're talking about here, just because we've been talking about it in terms of both of our struggles <laughs> to reduce our <laughs> beer bellies, uh, is that there's also all, all sorts of well-being um you exactly. know, mental health well-being aspects to um exercising and you know if you hate running and you like doing weights <laughs> then maybe you should do that you see what i mean okay last one um is the proverb no pain no gain actually true <laughs> or should we really be taking it just a little bit easier which suits me to be honest yeah well you can't take it easier than we've been taking it over the last <laughs> few months but uh yeah, I don't think, well, basically, you don't have to be feeling pain to get benefit from exercise. Even like moderate workouts will see really good improvements in health and well-being over doing nothing. There is that thing called DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness that people talk about, which is the kind of mu- muscle soreness you get the next day after doing weights. Or I nearly exercise. remember what that feels like. Yeah. <laughs> in a while. <laughs> um, and that's like a natural process. And people, I think some people find that quite satisfying because it makes you mm-hmm. think, oh, I've obviously worked hard because I've got this sort of level of um, soreness and um, stiffness or whatever. Um, and that, you know, that's not a bad thing at all. But, you know, working yourself to extreme pain where you like ignoring significant pain you've got can be a really bad idea. Um, and you know, if you're having some sort of serious heart pain, for example, obviously you should stop. Um, and again, if you don't, um, rest properly and you, uh, work your muscles too hard or this, then you can increase the likelihood of things like muscle tears and then you're, you can overcompensate and work other muscles more than others. And then you can aggravate injuries and then it me- means you're out for longer and things like that. So I don't think necessarily literally feeling pain is, uh, necessarily a good thing and a sign that you're um going to improve but i think probably no pain no gain is more broadly used in terms of like you know you're gonna have to put some effort in i'm afraid that's all we've got time for for this episode of for fact's sake thanks so much to beth for her insights and Hopefully me and Paul are going to take the insights we found out about health to improve ourselves in um, the coming months. And this will become Scotland's most fit podcast. (laughs) Yeah, a couple of Adonises uh, by December, I reckon. We'll see. Anyway, where can people go to uh, send us any um, encouragement or fact checks or anything, Paul? So we're obviously on all social media. So Twitter slash X, we are at Ferret Scott. We're also on Facebook, just the Ferret. We also have our Ferret Underground Facebook page. And if you want to get in touch with any of our journalists, we also have our community forum, which is community.theferret.scot. And as you've forgotten it, like every other time, you can email directly, backcheck at theferret.scot. That's your job. You're the monitor of that. Perfectly. Okay, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.